Well, um, I was so worried about where my water was, I didn't prepare something to say before we opened up our passages uh, to the passage this morning. But we're in Matthew 26. We are uh, going to look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane this morning. Uh, that can be found on page number 989 of the Pew Bibles. Uh, and we're in chapter 26, verses 30 through 46. Hear the word of the Lord. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that the splendor of the glory of Christ is on display in this passage. And we ask that you would show us Christ, that you would show us that he is a savior that we can trust in and in whom we can worship. I pray, Father, that you would cause your son to be glorified this morning through the preaching of your word. You would cause our hearts to be moved by the love of our father and the love of your son, Jesus Christ, for sinners like us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, one of my uh, most, well, I don't want, I was gonna say my most pervasive character flaws, but a character flaw that I happen to possess uh, is if I want something done in a certain way, I I feel passionately that I have to do it myself. Um, So I probably actually do. I know I drive my wife nuts because I want food cooked in a certain way. 
Uh, I want my clothes washed and, and hung uh, in a certain way. And if one of my children comes up to me and wants to help me with something I'm working on and they say, hey, dad, uh, is there anything I can help you with? My first reaction is to look at the five hours of work that I have in front of me and think to myself, no, I got all this. Why don't you keep your incompetent hands off of it? Now, thankfully, the Lord gives me great grace, and uh, that's not how I respond, uh, but that's, that's my initial reaction. Now, you may not be as neurotic as I am, but all of us do this to some degree. The more important something is to us, the harder it is to trust someone else. The more important something is to us, the more invested we are in a certain outcome. And the more inclined we are to want to stay in control and to micromanage the situation so it all comes out how we hope or think uh, it should. And the truth is, this is especially true when it comes to our salvation. We might be okay with Jesus dying for our sins. Of course, we can't pay that price ourselves. But do we really need to depend on Jesus every moment of every day for our entire life? How many of us are tempted to live our Christian lives as if we said to Jesus, thanks for saving me, Jesus, I got it from here. Are we really in such a desperate situation with sin that we can't even live without him? Are we really so weak and foolish and sinful that we need to constantly soak ourselves in the scriptures and prayer lest we fall into temptation? And the answer is yes, a thousand times yes. And typically Jesus has to bring things into our life that we can't handle on our own to convince us of this. And one other way that he convinces us of this is by showing us in the scriptures that he understands our weakness. He sympathizes with our weakness. And then he extends infinite grace and mercy and forgiveness to fools like us and proves himself worthy of our trust and our worship. And that is what we will see this morning. I actually have three points, but I've divided them into one or two main points. And the second point has two sub points. So first, we're gonna look at why we should not trust in ourselves. Instead, we should trust in Jesus because he is human and because he is the perfect human. So first, do not trust in yourself. Uh, so last week, we looked at the story of the last Passover where Jesus gave the church the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And before he instituted the Lord's Supper, he told the disciples that one of them would betray him. And what was surprising is they didn't try to defend themselves. They didn't try to accuse each other. They all came up to him one by one and said, Lord, is it I? Every one of them was afraid they were the one who could betray him. They all took the warning very seriously, everyone except Judas, who should have taken it seriously. And that's because true believers take the warnings of scripture seriously and then let those warnings drive us back to Christ for assurance. And then after Judas leaves, Jesus comforts his disciples by giving them the bread. He tells them, this is my body broken for you. He gives them the wine as a sign of his blood poured out for them, for their forgiveness. 
And then he promises them that he will drink wine again with them in the kingdom of his father. He leaves them with such hope and assurance. And then afterward, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives is on the east side of Jerusalem, where the Garden of Gethsemane is. John and his gospel tells us that they visited this place often, which is probably why Judas knows to find them there later this night. And they sing a hymn. It was customary to sing Psalm 115 to Psalm 118 after eating the Passover. And then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So here's what's interesting. Before, when they were in the upper room, he tells them, tonight, one of you will betray me. And they all took that warning very seriously. But now he tells them on this very night, every single one of you is going to fall away. And that word fall away literally means stumble into sin. And then Jesus gives two reasons why they are going to stumble into sin. First, because of me, and then because it is written. And it is written by the prophet Zechariah that God himself would strike the shepherd, talking about the Messiah, with his own sword. And as a result, the sheep would scatter. And that is what is about to happen. It's written. God himself is going to strike Jesus, even though Judas and the chief priests and the elders are all plotting to put him to death. It is God who is the one providentially working all of these events out to accomplish what he has predestined to take place. The prophet Isaiah tells us that it is the Lord who has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Paul in Romans tells us that it was God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. God will strike the shepherd. And when he does, the sheep will stumble into sin. Why? Because these disciples have no idea how weak and sinful they really are. They still feel like they should be able to trust themselves. They have no idea just how much they need Jesus. And no weak and sinful human could possibly be prepared to stand firm in the face of, a, of what they're about to experience on this night, which is why they will also stumble because of Jesus. They are not ready to accept what is about to happen to him. But thankfully for them and thankfully for us, Jesus came to save his people from their sins. He came to serve us, not to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so he tells them, after I am raised up, I will go before you into Galilee. He, he's trying to assure them. He's trying to say, hey, yes, you are all going to fall away, but I am going to rise from the dead. And then as the good shepherd, I'm going to come alongside you. I'm going to assemble you back together again. And then I'm going to lead you into Galilee. But right now they, they can't hear that. When they were still in the upper room, they heard his words and feared the warning, but this time it's just a little too personal. It's one thing to say, one of you will betray me. It's quite another thing to say, you all will fall away. And so now they finally get defensive and Peter answers him, though they all fall away because of you, I never will fall away. And this is why we love Peter, because he's saying the quiet part out loud. He's always saying what everyone else is probably thinking. 
That's why we love him. He's just like us. He's sincere. He's well-intentioned. He means well. He's clearly not like Judas. He loves Jesus. His spirit is willing. But he's also prideful and foolish and self-reliant. Jesus, who is the very word of God, tells him very plainly that tonight you will fall away. And no matter how sincere we are, no matter how much we love Jesus, God's word is more true than whatever we think or whatever we feel. It's so easy for us to place our sincere beliefs about what feels true to us over what God's word clearly says. And that's exactly what Peter is doing here. In his genuine sincerity, in his real love for Jesus, he actually ignores God's word. He thinks he's better than he is. He thinks he's better than his friends. A modern example of this would be when God's word warns us not to give up coming to church and meeting together because of how weak and sinful we are and how prone we are to stumble into sin. But out of sincerity and good intentions, we say things like this. I don't have to go to church to maintain my relationship with God. Do you see how that's exactly the same thing? When we say that, we think we're better than we are. We think we're better than other people who have to come to church every Sunday. But that might not be you, especially since we're all gathered here today. But all of us think we can play with sin and watch it on TV and not fall into temptation. We think we can love the world and the things of the world without that affecting our love for God. We think we're okay because we sincerely love Jesus and haven't committed an obvious sin yet. And because of that, we trust ourselves and end up ignoring what his word clearly says about such things because we think we're better than we are. We think we're better than other people. Thanks for saving me, Jesus. I got it from here. We're just like 75% of Americans who believe they are smarter than the average person. Do the math. We're just like Peter with a distorted view of our abilities and our weaknesses that we can go from fear to overconfidence in maybe an hour. But to those who are afraid they could betray Jesus, He says, here is my body broken for you. And to those who think they're above stumbling into sin, Jesus says this to Peter. Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. So when Jesus says, truly, I say to you, uh, this is like saying, Thus saith the Lord. Jesus is God. He does not need to take an oath to communicate solemn words to us. He just needs to say, truly, I say to you. Which means not only will Peter stumble into sin, 
but he's going to stumble into great sin by denying Jesus three times. And he's not gonna realize it until he hears the rooster crow. Jesus plants that into the scenario so that when he does hear the rooster crow, immediately he realizes, oh no, what have I done? And the reality of his sin, which we'll look at in a few weeks, is gonna be present before him. But in this moment, Peter just can't hear it and neither can the rest of the disciples. And what's interesting here is that Jesus chooses not to press it any further. Sometimes you have to let the child touch the hot pan so they know how hot the pan truly is. And sadly, sometimes we end up learning how sinful we are by stumbling into sin. And in so doing, we prove again that we cannot save ourselves. We need a savior to save us from our sin, which means saving us from the penalty of sin, but also saving us moment by moment, every day of our lives from the power of sin. So we need to trust in Jesus instead of ourselves because he is human. The fact that Jesus is human Uh, is woven through the gospels. Uh, He is born of a woman. He grows up from being a baby to a child, to a man, just like other humans. He eats food, he sleeps, he gets tired and thirsty. Uh, He weeps over Jerusalem. When he goes into the wilderness to fast for 40 days, he's tempted by Satan. And he experiences that as a human with all of the same desires, the bodily desires that we would experience for hunger but he's also God. He he teaches with authority. He just said, truly I say to you, which means thus saith the Lord. When he interprets scripture, he says, you have heard it said, but I tell you as if he is interpreting it as God himself. He has power over nature and demons and disease. He knows the future. He's predicted that Judas will betray him. A moment ago, he predicts that the disciples will all fall away. So he is God with all the characteristics and power of God. And he is a man with all the characteristics and weakness of man. We don't usually think of Jesus as being weak, but as a human, he possesses the same non-sinful weaknesses that you and I do. And in the garden of Gethsemane, we see his humanity on display. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, remain here and watch with me. So Gethsemane simply means oil press uh, and it's on the Mount of Olives. So likely this is a, a olive orchard. And like any human about to face the most difficult moment of his life, he wants his three closest friends with him, just like you would in your darkest hour. You would want to surround yourself with your closest companions because we're human. The weight of what he's about to experience is pressing in on him. And we're told he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And as is typical, these English words are appropriate, but they can't capture everything that the Greek word is saying here. This is a word that means deep grief and distress. The word troubled also carries with it the idea of anxiety. So he's deeply grieved and distressed and anxious, so grieved and anxious that he feels like he's dying. 
And so if you told your closest friends that you were sorrowful or troubled or deeply grieved, distressed and anxious, and you felt like you're dying, what would you hope their response would be? You would hope they would stay up with you all night if that's what it took. And Jesus is asking them to watch and to pray so that he can go and pray without being disturbed. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it is possible or if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So here he is about to do the very thing that he left heaven and became a human to do. And he's asking his father who is in heaven, hallowed be his name. He's asking him if it's possible for him not to go through with it. Just a second ago, he was telling his disciples that God was going to strike the shepherd and they were all going to scatter. So Jesus knows God's word cannot be broken. Earlier, he said this, he said, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until that all is accomplished. So he knows all that. And yet he's here pleading with his father for there to be another way. And here's where it gets even more complicated. We know that Jesus is God. And the, in the gospel of John, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. I and the father are one. God is never divided within, within himself. God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit, they share the same will. All of their desires are aligned. They are one God with one purpose always. They never desire something different from one another. And yet here is Jesus with his full humanity on display, wanting there to be another way. He says, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus's will is not to drink the cup. Jesus's will is for this cup to pass from him. He's so fully human that he desires something different from God. There are scholars who are critical of the Bible. Uh, They would read a story like Jonah, you know, spending three days in the belly of the whale or the story of Jesus feeding 5,000 people with a few loaves of bread and fish. And they would say those things did not happen. They are way too miraculous. Anybody with a brain knows that's not possible. So we can read this and clearly know that that didn't happen. But they believe this story, those same critical scholars. They believe the story about a man on the verge of being crucified, crying out to God in anguish for there to be another way. They believe this story because it makes Jesus look so human. So what are we to make of this story? We have stories of martyrs in church history going to their death, singing hymns as they're burned at the stake. And here's Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, pleading with God for there to be another way. Luke tells us he's actually sweating blood in this moment because he's so in anguish. 
how can, how can this Jesus save us? On one hand, it's great to know that your hero is just like you. On the other hand, it's quite terrifying to find out that your hero is just like you. Because how can that hero save us? And the answer to that question is because he is God and he is human and he is without sin. So he is like us in every way. And here in the Garden of Gethsemane, more than any other place, we can see that he is like us. He is one of us, but without sin. The writer of the Hebrews says this, he says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So there's a reason why addicts who are getting clean and sober are more drawn to former addicts. Because former addicts can sympathize with their weakness. And so you wonder, how is it possible for someone to be tempted like me, but without sin? How is it possible for someone who's never sinned like I've sinned to be able to sympathize with my weakness? And that answer is on display in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus knows what it's like for every bone in his body to be screaming for something different than what God's will is. But unlike us, Jesus will say, not my will, but yours be done. See, this is why we can't trust ourselves. By nature, our hearts are deceitful above all else. We are like the disciples, foolish and proud. Left to ourselves, we trust what we think and what we feel more than God's word. We think we're better than we are. We think we're better than other people. And Jesus knows what it's like to be us because he is human. So he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses, but he's the perfect human because he still trusts God's word more than what he is feeling at this moment. Do you see that? He's able to feel everything that we feel in temptation and yet trust God's word more than what he's feeling. There are many things weighing Jesus down in the garden. Judas betraying him, his closest friends scattering and running away from him. Uh, He knows he's going to die one of the most painful deaths human beings have ever come up with. Before that, he's going to be falsely accused in a sham trial, beaten. He's going to be dragged naked through the streets of Jerusalem. And as bad as all that will be, that's not even close to being the worst part. The worst part is that Jesus, the sinless son of God, is going to become sin. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says this, he says, For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So have you ever done something that you told yourself you'd never do or that you'd never do again? But then you did it. Do you remember that sick, sinking feeling of becoming sin as you realize what you've done? Jesus never had that experience. But on the cross, he takes our sin on his shoulders. He will be sin. He will be identified with sinners so much 
that somehow our stain of sin will be on him. But on the cross, but on the cross and on the cross alone, he is going to find out what sin is like in some mysterious way. When Adam and Eve first sinned in the Garden of Eden, they were so ashamed and guilty that they wanted to hide and cover themselves. And Jesus has never been in contact with sin like that. And yet on the cross, God will make him to be sin who knew no sin and he will bear our shame and guilt. See, we're so used to sin. But can you imagine never being used to sin? going from a place of infinite perfection to somehow becoming sin. I mean, I don't know if we can even wrap our minds around it fully. But not only that, when he says, let this cup pass from me, he's pointing us to the cup he will drink in our place. Psalm 11 says this, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. This is why when we share the gospel, we don't tell people God loves you and has a plan for your life. We tell them they are sinners. And yet God in his mercy has made a way if they will repent of their sins and put their trust in Jesus and believe in his name, they can know that Jesus drank this cup in their place. Psalm 75, we read this, from the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Isaiah calls this the cup of God's wrath. Jeremiah calls it the cup of the wine of wrath. Ezekiel calls it a cup deep and large, filled with horror and desolation. And then to the wicked, he says, you shall drink it and drain it out and gnaw its shard and tear, gnaw its shards and tear your breasts. And just in case we might be tempted to think, oh, this is just an Old Testament image. We read this in the book of Revelation. And another angel, a third, followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. This is why the Apostles' Creed says that Jesus descended into hell. Because he is about to experience the hell sinners deserve when he drinks the cup of God's wrath. And he's described hell throughout the book of Matthew as weeping and darkness and gnashing of teeth. And he's about to experience exactly what that is like. On the cross, the eternal son of God in whom the father is well pleased who has always been in the light and the presence of God will cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So of course he wants there to be another way. Of course he does. He is so fully human that he desires something different from God the Father, yet he is the perfect human and he is God. And so he can stare into the cup of the wine of God's wrath and still say, not as I will, but as you will. So we can trust him. 
more than what we think or feel. Because he did this for you. And then after this agony, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So after pouring out his heart to his friends, after telling them that he is so distressed and anxious that he feels like he's going to die, he asked them to stay awake with him and pray so that he can go and pray. And they can't even do that for an hour. Instead, they fall asleep. So then he tells them to watch and pray so that they may not fall into temptation, which means they should have been praying the whole time, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And why do we need to pray that? Because we are weak. Our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. Our sincerity is not enough. The temptation they're facing is not necessarily the temptation to sleep when their friend and master needs them. Jesus is talking more than likely here about the temptation they're going to face when their friend and master is arrested. The reason they're going to fall away or stumble into sin is because they're not ready for that. They've not been watching and praying. And the scriptures are constantly reminding us of the seriousness and the gravity of this spiritual drama happening all around us every day. But like the disciples, we become dull to it so easily. And here he's giving them the secret to overcoming sin and temptation. But they're so overwhelmed with the desire to sleep, they can't even feel the gravity of the moment. But here's what makes them different than Judas. At least their spirit is willing. It's their flesh that is weak, which is why they need to trust in Jesus. They need to trust his power because he is the one who can stare into the cup of God's wrath and still choose to drink it down to the last drop. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass, unless I drink it, your will be done. You can almost hear more resignation in his voice now. It's almost like God is answering his prayer by causing him to come to a place where he is ready. He's ready to move forward. Even though everything in him is screaming for there to be another way, at the end of the day, his will is aligned with the father's because he would rather do what the father wills. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. Of course, they're sleeping, they're tired, they're weak, they're human, they need a savior. And now Jesus is alone. He must do this alone. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So Jesus watched and prayed. And now he's resolved to go to the cross. The hour is at hand. The disciples are going to have to sleep later. God has heard Jesus' prayers. 
not by granting him another way, but by strengthening him to endure everything that will happen to him from this moment. And the application here is trust in Jesus. Trust in this Jesus who came to save his people from their sins. Trust in this Jesus who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Trust his words more than what you think or feel. Trust in him that you are more weak and sinful and foolish than than you ever imagined. And that on your own, you're prone to fall away and stumble into sin. And you must live life watching and praying. And that we are prone to believe we're better than we are and that we don't need a savior because our heart is deceitful above all else. Many times this passage is is preached that Jesus is our example. And yes, yes, he is our example. He does give us the pattern for how to deal with sin and temptation. But more than that, in this passage, what we see, what we behold is Jesus as our object of faith. He is the man who we should fall down and worship. When we see what he's done, we can put our trust in him. We can trust in his work in our place. We can fight temptation mostly because he's defeated the ultimate temptation for us. And we needed him to be a human because only a human can rescue us. In the garden, the first garden, when Adam sinned and thrust us all into sin, He was a human. And now here, the perfect human. Passed the test in the garden with perfect obedience. And we can either be represented by Adam in our sin, or we can be represented by Christ and his victory and his holiness. And through faith and faith alone, we can look at what Christ has done, trust in him, not only to forgive us of our sins, but to carry us every moment of every day for the rest of our lives, trusting in him and him alone for his provision for our great need. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to know that Jesus is one of us, that he is a human, that he understands and sympathizes with our weakness, that he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He is powerful enough to save us because he is God. He is able to save us because he is one of us and he has no sin of his own to deal with. God, he truly is the perfect savior. Help all of us to look to him and to him alone, to behold him in our worship and our praise, to cling to him by faith alone, and to trust in him to provide for us what we need every moment of every day, our entire lives. In his name we pray, amen.